All right, Salt Company, what's up, guys? There we go. Go ahead and have a seat. What a time. Hey, welcome. Welcome to a beautiful Thursday night in February. My name is Austin. I have the privilege of leading this thing along with a great team, and it is a joy to be with you. Happy Thursday. Hey, we're going to continue our series looking at the first couple chapters of Genesis, but I heard somebody talking about something that I'd like to bring to your attention. Uh, I heard somebody talking the other day about a sad reality that people can become known for the wrong things, basically, okay? And this is the example that he suggested. He was talking about Samuel L. Jackson. You guys know Samuel L. Jackson? Yeah, of course you do. Epic dude, iconic actor, Mace Windu, you know? Mace Windu, purple lightsaber, he's a real guy. But he's also an incredible icon in other films, the Tarantino movies. He's, you know, a great character, phenomenal actor. Okay, have you ever gone up to somebody and you were talking to them about Samuel L. Jackson and they go, oh yeah, the Capital One guy? They're like, no. (laughs) Oh yeah, the what's in your wallet guy. You know, as if that was his greatest accomplishment. The thing that he should really be known for was his commercials for Capital One. People can get known for the wrong things, okay? Here's another thing that was on my mind this week because, of course, the Super Bowl is coming up this Sunday. Big time. Oh, I see that. Chiefs. Okay. Speaking of the Chiefs, interesting. Oh, dang. Nobody likes the Chiefs. Here's maybe why you don't like the Chiefs. Have you heard of a guy named Travis Kelsey? Okay, you might think, wow, great football player, amazing football player. Have you ever heard, oh, is he, is he just Taylor Swift's boyfriend, you know? No, he's not just Taylor Swift's boyfriend. He's a fantastic athlete and really good at playing the tight end position. It's unbelievable that people can become known for the wrong things, right? This happens all the time. Okay. Easy transition here. Guys, I actually think that God can get a reputation for the wrong things, that we can know him for the wrong things. Seriously, just have a conversation with anybody on campus. If you were to open up the door to a conversation and you drop the name God, you drop the name Jesus, and immediately there's this like, oh, dude, so sorry, I did not mean to like cuss in front of you. I did not mean to like insult you. Did not know you were that kind of guy. Or, or if you drop the name Jesus and like, nah, man, I'm just like not, not that into like religious stuff. Or if you drop the name Jesus and they're like, yeah, I just like have not been to church in a while. We can get to know God by things that are not actually the most important on the list. Is God most concerned about church attendance and cussing? No, that's right. What is it that we should actually know God for? Like what is the thing, if there's one thing, that we should know him by? And have we gotten to know him by the wrong things? We can... uh, if even in this like first three chapters of Genesis, basically what I want to uncover for us in this next little bit is that there is something that we can know God by, that we should know him by, and it's a simple word, grace. It's what the whole story of the Bible is all about. It's about grace. 
undeserved kindness. That's what grace is. And yet still, oftentimes a lot of us are thinking about God, not about undeserved kindness, but about deserved reputation. As if God is kind of up on his throne and telling his angels like, all right, show me the top ranked worshiper right now. Show me the stats. Like what's their arm raised in worship percentage? How many Bible verses have they read? Like, how, Show me their church attendance. Show me the stat sheet right now, and I'm going to start ranking. Did they cuss? Drop them down. You know what I'm saying? Did God, is God like that? Is he just concerned with, like, who's the best human on the planet right now? That's sometimes our idea of him, but that's not grace. Like we're trying to somehow earn his favor, but grace is undeserved favor. What I want you guys to see as we're looking at Genesis 2 and 3 tonight is that God should be known for one thing in particular, grace. It's been this way since the very beginning. He has never changed. He will never change. And so when we look at this, we can see that the way we get back to paradise is by grace. But in order to get there, I want to do a simple review of where we've been so far the past two weeks. So even if you haven't been here the past two weeks, we can catch you up to speed. Here's what we looked like, uh, here's what we looked at two weeks ago, that we were made by God. That God spoke us into existence and we are his favorite thing. That he is absolutely obsessed with humanity. We were given a special role of reflecting God's beauty and his character to the world, but... What we talked about last week is that we were deceived by the enemy. That a serpent gave us an idea that maybe we shouldn't trust God. And we believed that lie, which caused us to rebel against God, to go our own way, to sin against him. And that caused us to be broken by sin. That's what we're looking at right now, that we are broken by sin. It led us to Genesis chapter 3. Verse 14, if you've got a Bible, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to look at a couple verses right here. This is God unpacking the effects of sin, the effects of our rebellion against him pretty directly. This is what it says in Genesis chapter 3, that the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now to the woman, he said, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the, plant, the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. This is how we've been broken by sin. 
Did you catch it? God tells the devil to eat dust. I like that. God tells humans, however, that they will return to dust. I don't like that as much. It's unpacking that from this point, life is going to be characterized by hard work, by sweat, by labor, by pain, and ultimately by death. And in an instant, we see that paradise was lost altogether. Here's what I want us to notice about the effect of sin. Is that sin caused brokenness on all levels. Think about this with me. It caused brokenness physically, right? Our bodies get tired, fatigued, saggy. Work is draining, okay? Sin also brought brokenness socially. Did you catch the part where it said that Eve's desire would be contrary to her husband's? It brought distrust with, with relationships They're marked with unmet expectations and miscommunications. Sin brought brokenness psychologically. We were taken from where we belong. We don't know who we are anymore. And so our identities are fragile. Even our own thoughts often are unkind to us. Guys, nothing was left untouched by the curse of sin. Brokenness on all levels. But the interesting thing is I don't actually need to like unpack all of that for you. You guys get it. This is our lived experience. Sin hurts us. From the very moment that we felt pain, our instincts as humans have been to try and fix it, heal it, like get rid of it, get pain out of here. And so we, along with The rest of humanity, we're spending our entire lives on a mission to eradicate the curse of sin. But what we end up doing is focusing on the effect, right? The effects physically, socially, or psychologically. This is why psychologists will tell you to get right with your mind. This is why social justice movements are telling you to get right with the people around you. This is why personal trainers and dietitians they're telling you to get right with your body. All of those things will help for sure. All of those things are absolutely good things to pursue and to correct and to see how to use great tools to heal. But this is what the Bible teaches, that though those things will help, they will not solve the main issue. They will not solve the core issue of sin. You can work out, you can eat healthy, you can have a bunch of friends, you can serve the needy, you can be involved in your community, you can even go to counseling, etc. Those are all great things. They will help, but they will not solve the main issue. What the Bible says is the main issue in your life is that you're not right with God. The main issue isn't psychological, it's not social, it's not physical, the main problem is theological, it's spiritual, that you're not right with the maker of the world. And so where we find ourselves is that we are physically alive, but we are spiritually dead. We're like zombies. We're, we're alive, but we're not truly alive in the sense 
that we can actually do what we were made to do. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. We've lost our innocence. We've sinned against a holy God and are just on our way to becoming dust again. If the mission of your life is to repair and effect that sin has on your life, physical, social, psychological. If your focus is on the effect of sin, it is as good as putting a Band-Aid on a gun wound while you're bleeding out. It's just a matter of time before you're going to be disappointed once again because you're not solving, you're not healing the main problem. And so the goal of tonight is not to just put another Band-Aid on the problem. The goal tonight is not even to just give you like a Tylenol pill to kind of numb the pain for a while. I'm praying that tonight you would be met by the grace of God that like pumps life into your veins so that you would see the brokenness that sin has caused, but you would see that there is life offered from God and it's come by grace. What we're gonna see is that this has been that way all along, that we're gonna see two signs of grace in Genesis 3. The first being that we are clothed in grace. I'm excited about this one. We read this section last week, but I want you to see that Adam and Eve had a first reaction to their brokenness. They had a first reaction after they took the fruit. Let's look at Genesis 3, verse 7, and see what their first reaction was. After they had taken the fruit, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, the moment after they took of the forbidden fruit, they noticed that they were exposed. No clothes on, right? Their immediate reaction was to cover up. Why did, why did this happen? Because they didn't have clothes on to begin with. So what actually went down when they like ate a fruit that all of a sudden they become super self-conscious? It even says in Genesis 2.25, like a little bit before, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The story puts emphasis on the fact that all things were fine. They were comfortable with each other until they ate the fruit. So what went down to make them so ashamed? Was it that they all of a sudden, like when they ate the fruit, they like turned ugly? I don't think so. What happened was there was a trust breakdown. When they decided to go against God's design, it meant that they broke the trust. They lost the trust everywhere. It wasn't just that they lost trust between God and man, but also between man and woman, trust was gone. And so they became uncomfortable with one another. They became relationally uncomfortable. And when they were exposed, they didn't like it anymore because their relationship was no longer in perfect harmony. Sin meant that Adam couldn't trust Eve. Eve couldn't trust Adam. And what did they do? They reached for the fig leaves. It's just what any of us would do. If we found ourselves in a similar situation, feeling exposed, what do we quickly try to do? We just try to cover up. We just grab 
for the fig leaves, whatever we can get to cover ourselves. Remember what we said about this last week, that this story is the human condition. This story speaks so loudly into our modern moment. I don't know about you, but whenever I feel insecure or imperfect, the first instinct that I have is to figuratively reach for the fig leaves to try and cover myself up, to cover up the ways that I'm insecure, to cover up the ways that I know I'm not not quite good enough. And we've got to be honest with ourselves. Like, if you're not trying to fix up your image, if you're not trying to make yourself look better than you actually feel, are you even American? Like, this, this is our moment. This is what it's all about. Fixing up your image. Reaching for something to cover up the things that you're insecure about so that it looks like you're more put together than you actually are. That's a college experience. You're trying to flex the things that are most impressive about you. You're trying to flex the things that are most compelling, most attractive about you so that you can try and present a fixed-up image for somebody to see. Adam and Eve were doing what any one of us do on a daily basis when we're insecure. This is the human condition. It's our best attempt to fill the gap between what we are and what we think we should be. It was the immediate strategy then, and it's the same strategy now. We clothe ourselves with what we can. For Adam and Eve, it was fig leaves. For you and me, it could be a number of things, right? It could be a charisma that makes people think that you've got it all together. It could be a resume that that makes it certain that you'll get a job in any field. It could be like a digital highlight reel that makes a couple hundred or thousand people like stop and look at you for a while. It could be a physical wardrobe that makes people think that you're like cool, but you're also like not trying too hard. These are fig leaves, things you are reaching for to cover up insecurity. But what we see about fig leaves is that they are incredibly fragile. Our modern moment wants you to believe that you can cover yourselves well with things like that. But they're fragile. They won't stand the test of time. They won't sufficiently cover you. Okay, but here's the good news. Man, God cares about your clothes. He cares about what you're trying to cover yourself with. I want you to see in this same story what God does about how Adam and Eve covered themselves. He saw that they covered themselves with these fig leaves and made some clothes of their own, but because he cares about how you're covered, he actually did something about it. This is verse 21, a little bit later in the chapter. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So God sees that Adam and Eve made some clothes out of leaves, and then he's like, let me actually give you something a little bit different. What is this saying about clothes? Why would God provide some clothes that that Adam and Eve had already made some? 
He's doing two things. He's agreeing that clothing is necessary to cover imperfection, but he's rejecting the man-made version. He agrees that it's a good thing to cover up imperfection. However, the man-made version, the fragile version, just won't do. And so God sees their attempt to cover up guilt with leaves and gives them something much more secure, a garment made of skin. Here's what we can assume about the animal skins, is that the animal skins would be much stronger than the leaves, wouldn't they? That the animal skins would be much warmer than the leaves, but also that the animal skins would be much more costly than the leaves. Because in order to give them clothes made from an animal, an animal would need to lose its life. The clothes that God provides came at the expense of somebody else. Guys, this is genius storytelling by God. The only thing that will cover you fully, it cannot be a man-made covering. It's got to be a costly material that came at the expense of someone else. It has to be the perfection of Jesus. The only way that you can be secure about the way you look when you stand in front of a holy God is if you are clothed in perfection, which none of us have earned on our, on our own. And so we are desperate for God to clothe us with perfection, but here is what he has promised, that he is offering the spilled blood of his perfect son, Jesus, to clothe you with his perfection. He's asking you to trade your fig leaves for the coat of Christ to toss away the man-made effort to try and cover up your insecurities and to put on Christ and his perfection. In the garden, the, the animal lost its life so that man would be clothed in fur, but on the cross, Jesus lost his life so that you would be clothed in his perfection. It was foretelling this whole time that something would have to lose its life so that we would be clothed in what we needed to be secure. So when you put on the coat of Christ, you can have full confidence that God will not turn you away because of imperfection, because he doesn't see the imperfection anymore. When he sees you, he sees the perfection of Christ. You are enough when you have the coat of Christ on. But you need that. You need his spotless record. You need his perfect resume. You need his blood running through your veins. Otherwise, the insecurity will last. Christianity is not about working hard to cover yourself in order to impress God. Christianity is about being covered by God in order to enjoy God. 
It has never been about you trying to put on something on your own to impress anybody. It's always been about God giving you the necessary materials for life and everything. Trade your fig leaves for the coat of Christ. That's the thing that's on the table right now. That's how we are clothed in grace. I want you to see a second way that God displays his grace in Genesis. Okay, this is the second evidence that they will be surprised by grace. This actually starts in Genesis chapter 2. I want to look back at when God was talking to them about the tree that they should not eat from. Okay, this is Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, question for you. This is earlier, right? God said on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Why are we still reading about them after they ate it? Why, did not God, why didn't God just like smoke them off the face of the earth right after they ate the fruit? Why does their story continue? Imagine that you were Adam and Eve. You had taken, you saw that tree in front of you. It's, it's pretty. The fruit looks delicious. You know you shouldn't eat it, but you really want to. You take the fruit off the tree, and you're starting to chew. Think about being put in their shoes. Would the words that God had said directly to them not be coming through their mind? Would they not immediately remember that God said, on the day that you eat this, you're going to die? Would adrenaline not just shoot through your body? You would be filled with regret. You might even like spit out the fruit that you tried eating. Like, I'm just kidding. I don't want it anymore. Filled with regret. Fear would course through your veins. Because you know that God meant what he said. And that you ate the fruit. So, so this is the end. Like you're starting to really play this out in your mind. Like if I did that, this is over. They expected the worst. I'm sure of it. They expected the worst, but they were met with grace. Why did their story continue? They faced consequences, surely, physically alive but spiritually dead, but why did their story continue? Why did humanity continue to exist and let this all play out? Why didn't it just end right there? It totally could have. God said that this would happen. Why did the story go on? Grace. This is just what God does. He's merciful. It's his character. It's evident all throughout it. They expected the worst, but they received grace. Honestly, this reminded me of a time in high school. I was in the basement. Little Tykes basketball hoop. Oh my goodness. Me and my buddy, we were having a dunk contest. It was going great, you know? We were doing trick shots off the ottoman, okay? And my guy Derek, he had this 
insane, insane move. He went one foot off of the ottoman, 360 between the legs, and then put it in. It was fantastic, an electric dunk. However, he landed a little poorly, like a little tricky, and then he straight up hip-checked the wall and left a Derek-sized hole in my parents' basement wall. Tricky, you know? And Derek, nice dude, but this guy was scared out of his mind. He was so nervous. I'm not sure what he was expecting was going to happen. He, he was, at this point, he like wasn't super tight with my parents yet. Like He kind of knew them, but he wasn't super tight. And so he saw this hole in the wall. He like looked at me, and he's freaking out. I'm like, can't believe that that just happened. And then my, I can hear my dad like coming around the corner. He like comes down the stairs a little bit. He just like peeks his head over. He's like, hey, how's it going? And Derek's over in the corner, like he's hiding his face. He's, I don't know if he thought he was going to get beat or something. I'm not sure. But he like peeks out of from behind his hands and was like, yeah, I'm so, so, like, I, I don't know what happened. I just like put myself in your wall. And then my dad's like, oh, are you okay? He's like, yeah. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Like, you know, we'll fix it later. Glad you're having fun. You know, keep dunking. It's like, oh, my goodness. It's so nice. Uh, I was just thinking about this the other day. Me and my dad still talk about fixing that whole, like, we haven't fixed it yet. <laughs> Sorry, Dad. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Derek was expecting the worst. And what was he met with? Grace. Because the only way that that happens, the only way that my dad would see the hole in the wall and not ask the question, how could you, but ask the question, are you okay, is because he cares way more about Derek than he does about the wall. That's grace. Okay, why did God continue the story? Because he cares so much about humanity that he's willing to let the story go on and find a solution to the real problem. It's because he cares so much about humanity that he would find a solution to the deeper problem. It's in God's character to give grace. And so what we are going to see, we've read it earlier, I want to read it again. The response, God's response to the serpent within it, is hidden the plan for his redemption, the way that he is going to solve the real problem. It's the first hint of how God will free humanity from sin. Check this out with me. This is crazy. Genesis 3, 14 through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Ever wonder why you're so afraid of snakes? This is why. Enmity between the snake and the woman. But this is so much deeper than making us like squirmy around snakes. This is what is on display here. Who has the spotlight? He's saying, I'm gonna put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. 
But then he zooms in and is talking about two individuals here. He's talking about a war between two individuals. He, as in the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you, the devil, shall bruise his heel. This is, in one sentence, the first gospel. The first time it's said out loud by God that there would be a war between one man and the devil. And the one man would crush the head of the devil. But not without that man facing a wound. This is God looking into the future and seeing that Jesus would die on a cross to pay for the sin of the world. But he would need to die. He would need to suffer the wound from the devil. But it would successfully crush the head of the serpent. It's the first evidence of the gospel. It's in Genesis chapter 3. This tells us, it, it's so clear that this was the plan the whole time. It was the plan the whole time that Jesus would come. And, and so this is just a spoiler to the end of the story that the devil loses. Its head gets stomped on. But it comes at a cost. And so what we see is that from Genesis 3 all the way until John chapter 1, humanity is waiting for this man this man who would stomp on the head of the enemy, who would free humanity from the curse of sin. But then in John chapter 1, Jesus appears on the scene, and in poetic fashion, a man yells out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ would be the man to take away the sin of the world, the promised Messiah. But what we need to see in Genesis 3, that first gospel is, where are we in that story? Like, where are you in that story? Are you the hero? Are you the one that wins the war for humanity, that wins the war even maybe just for yourself? Are you the one that frees yourself from sin? No way. God did it all. So what we realize is that the gospel of Jesus is basically one huge shocker. Guys, if you've ever talked to somebody who has really met with Jesus and been transformed by him, when you ask them about like, man, why, why have you been like saved? Like, why is your life different? They like started looking around like, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I don't deserve this. Like, why me? Why, why would God choose me? Why would he choose to deal with my sin? Why would he choose to welcome me back home? It's a beautiful mystery. It's a huge shocker. Because honestly, we were all expecting the worst, but what we were met with was grace. That God would be the one to provide all things for us. He would take care of our sin, and he would clothe us with righteousness. Man, this is the real picture of who God is. He doesn't want you because there's something innately impressive about you. There's, he doesn't want you because you're a great worshiper. 
He wants you because he loves you. And he'll do anything to get you back. Have you ever lost something that was like super, super precious to you? Maybe it was, like a, maybe it was just like a toy growing up. Something really precious. You loved playing with it. Okay, but then you lose it. And maybe you spend like, you spend days, weeks even, trying to hunt this toy down. And you can't find it. You're not sure what's going on. But then, shortly after, you find it right in the couch cushions. <laughs> Classic. Right in the couch cushions. Okay, what did it feel like to find that most prized possession again? What did it feel like to have that thing back? Was it not like you loved that thing even more than when you had it in the first place? Like you lost that thing, but when you found it, it was almost like you were more excited to play with it than when you had it at the beginning. The fact that you lost it made you love having it back even more. Guys, this is the way that God views you. He lost you because of sin and brokenness. He lost that relationship. And he's done whatever he can. He's come looking for you, pursuing you, doing the work through the life of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And when he has you back, it's almost like he loves you more than when he had you in the first place. A redeemed person who he has found, who he brings back. He's so stoked that you're back. Not that he didn't love you in the first place, not that he didn't appreciate having you in the first place, but just the fact that he lost you and having you back makes him love you even more. It's some beautiful mystery. And so I just have three final things to say to the person in the room that feels far from God. If you feel far from God, the thing you should know first is that God is pursuing you. It's the reason that you're here tonight. He is pursuing you. The second thing is that the way back to God is not a hill to climb, but is a cross to believe in that he has taken care of your sin. You don't have to earn your way back to him, but it's a free gift. It's grace. And the last thing is that grace isn't just a one-time thing, it's an all-the-time thing. It's not that you believe once and then you start needing to earn his approval. It's believe and receive grace and then grace and then grace. The gospel isn't just the diving board, it's the pool that we swim in. So my invitation to you tonight is basically just to join me in being surprised by the grace of God all over again. Amazed that you can't outsin God's grace and you can't outrun his reach, but he will provide you with the clothing you need. He will conquer your sin. He will bring you back to paradise, to relationship with him. It's grace. Let's pray and thank God for that reality. Father, thank you for giving us grace, for being a God characterized by that thing, 
undeserved kindness. Father, would you just meet us in this place, whether we feel far from you, whether we are far from you, God. Meet us in this place. Thank you for bringing us here. God, thank you for the clothing in Jesus that we receive. The secure cloth, the robes of righteousness that you give us because of Jesus's sacrifice. Thank you for the evidences of that in Genesis 3. I pray that we would see what you've done for us and that we would accept your sacrifice. God, would you be glorified in this place? Would you be made much of in our hearts? And would you receive glory now as we sing? Pray this in Jesus' name.